Hello, this is Everwonder from the California Science Center. I'm Perry Roth Johnson. We're continuing our coverage of the James Webb Space Telescope, which is scheduled to launch in the coming weeks and is expected to be the world's premier space telescope. In our last episode, we talked to engineer Stephanie Hernandez about what it was like to help build this telescope. If you haven't already, please give it a listen. Okay, so last episode was all about how we built the telescope, but what about the people who will look into space with it? Ever wonder how scientists will use the James Webb Space Telescope? Well, today we're going to meet someone who has been dreaming for years about what we could see with this technological marvel. Dr. Vivian Yu is an assistant research astronomer at the University of California, Irvine. She will also be one of the first people to conduct research with the James Webb Space Telescope. Vivian explained to us what she hopes to discover by pointing Webb at colliding galaxies and supermassive black holes, and why this telescope is expected to be so good at peering through dust. It's a fascinating conversation full of wild and trippy stuff. Let's get into it. Dr. Vivian Yu, you are an assistant research astronomer at the University of California, Irvine, and you will also be one of the first to conduct research with the James Webb Space Telescope. Vivian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Devin Waller, co-host of the show, is also here with us. Hi, Devin. Hey, Perry. It's nice to be here. And hi, Vivian. Thanks so much for joining us. So, Vivian, we're super pumped to talk to an astronomer like you who will be one of the first to use the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, As you're well aware, it's expected to be the world's premier space telescope and is scheduled to launch this December. You'll be getting some of the first pictures back from Webb for for the observation programs you're leading, where you'll be looking at supermassive black holes. Really exciting stuff. But before we get into your research, I want to start with some basics about the telescope itself and what you hope to achieve with it. First of all, just what is the Space Web Telescope? How do you talk to your friends and family about it? Well, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be one of the uh, world's premier telescopes in the sense that it is going to be a very big space telescope um, that's going to be working in the optical infrared. A lot of uh, folks call it the uh, uh, successor to Hubble Space Telescope, whose legacy we all are very familiar with. Um, and it's going to be, you know, both better and different in in, in some sense, where its primary um, observations are going to be in the infrared wavelengths, and it's going to have a lot of advanced instruments uh, that we've never had before put in space. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it's going to be a really kind of revolutionary type of instruments that we're all looking forward to using. What are you most excited to hopefully discover with Webb? Well, uh, because I'm looking at the centers of these interacting galaxies uh, with Webb, what I'm really hoping to look at is actually how the, the gas and other materials within the galaxy is going to be falling into the central massive black hole and how that kind of spews out back into the environment of the, of the galaxy uh, through this process that was not previously accessible to us. And, and how come? Is it because when the galaxies collide, something happens? When galaxies interact, uh, a lot of materials, um, and by materials, I mean, you know, stars, dust, gas, uh, all of that kind of gets stirred up and they get disturbed and then they uh, eventually lose the angular momentum and they fall towards the center. And all that dust is, you know, pretty in some way, but it's also blocking our view into the center. And with basically the infrared capability of James Webb, we would be able to actually peer through the dust and see what's going on behind the dust screen. Vinian, that's really interesting. So infrared, so let's start with infrared light. You can actually peer through the dust and any other 
things, I guess, that are in the way for you to actually see what's at the center of galaxies. So can you kind of break down what exactly is infrared light and where does it fit on the spectrum? Yes, very good question. So uh, the way I think about infrared and to the first order, it's to maybe perceive it as like temperature, right? It's um, when you think about, uh, maybe you've seen some demonstrations of infrared cameras at museums or, or other places. Uh, a lot of times you can, you know, if you just take it, use a visible camera that we're all used to, you can see what your eyes can see. But if you kind of uh, hide behind a, a uh, plastic bag, a black plastic bag, then you can't see anything but the black plastic bag. But if you then look at yourself through the, in the infrared camera, through that plastic bag, you can actually see an image of presumably a person because you are warmer than the plastic bag. So places where you are warmer is going to appear brighter in this infrared image. And so, you know, same thing, you know, with it, uh, JWST, we would be able to kind of see through the dust because there's going to be heat, there's going to be energy that's generated mm-hmm. that is not actually uh, visible in the visible light, but they will be uh, visible to us through uh, an infrared uh, regime. Okay, so we're going to use infrared on web to see through the dust and look at the galaxies with the really bright centers, the supermassive black holes. I heard you mention that earlier. Uh, just for our listeners, what is mm-hmm. a black hole? Well, that's a, also a very good question. Um, so black hole is probably not a hole because we astronomers a lot of times uh, misname <laughs> things when we first discover them. Uh, but in fact, they are very compact and dense objects. So black holes are just a, a uh, condensation of, like, of a, a lot of material, very packed, very compact in a very small volume of space. And in fact, it's so compact that the gravity is going to be so strong that not th- nothing can escape, not even light can really escape from it. And therefore, wow. when no light is emits from these uh, objects and they appear black um, because you can't see light, and then they sort of look like a hole in space, I suppose if you look at uh, a patch of sky, then uh, that's why we call them black holes. But also black holes, um, they are uh, categorized by different uh, masses. And usually we like to think about masses because they are a kind of an easy property of them that we can measure as opposed to to spin or anything else. And also uh, knowing their masses tells us something about the ways that different ways that they might have been formed. So there are different categories of these black holes. Uh, there are things that we call like the stellar mass black holes, which are the smallest uh, of their group. And then there are the intermediate mass black holes. And there's also the supermassive black holes. And then their breakdown um, is somewhere between, you know, uh, 10 to 100 solar masses or, or the mass of uh, our sun uh, for the smallest uh, black holes or stellar mass mm-hmm. black holes. And then somewhere uh, at a million or more solar masses for wow. the supermassive black holes. And somewhere in between is like uh, are the intermediate mass black holes. Did you say 100 million times the mass of our sun? <laughs> so That's big. scary. Yeah, the, the, ones I, we, I, the ones I routinely study are about 100 tens or 100 million solar masses. That's right. Jeez. Supermassive black holes um, in the center of massive galaxies, they seem to play an important role in the formation or at least the evolution of those galaxies. I read somewhere that you wrote that black holes are driving galaxy evolution. Can you tell us more about what that means? Of course. Um, so, yeah, one of the, you know, some of the 
relationship we've observed in the past, you know, when we look at black holes and we look at the these massive galaxies that they seem to reside in and seem to be ubiquitously uh, residing in, uh, is that actually the more massive the galaxy, the more massive the central supermassive black hole uh, seems to be. And so at first glance, maybe that seemed intuitive uh, to some folks, but uh, when you really think about the difference in size between the two entities, it's as if we're saying that something the size of our planet uh, cares about, you know, and scales with that of a baseball bat. And so, you know, this is kind of a surprising finding that has us really puzzled so that we want to understand what physical processes are involved so that the two entities seems to relate to one another. And so this is what we call the co-evolution of black holes and galaxies, to uh, describe the fates of how uh, the galaxies and black holes seem so intertwined. And so they're uh, really interacting with each other via what we call a feeding and feedback processes, where the galaxy feeds gas to the black hole to grow it, and that in turn releases energy to feed back into uh, the galactic host to really influence uh, its stars and, and, and other material in it, and consequently its, uh, its fate. So... Uh, this is how we we describe that you know the black holes and galaxies uh, co-evolved together. Did you say something the size of a baseball bat is affecting something the size of our planet? So the black hole is the baseball bat in this analogy, and the galaxy yes. is the planet. That's crazy. As a baseball fan, <laughs> I appreciate that analogy very much. <laughs> so, like, would the galaxies, the really big galaxies, if they didn't have a supermassive black hole in the middle, would they fly apart? Or, like, do they need it to hold themselves together? Well, I mean, so far what we've seen is that uh, there is seems to be one in every, in every galaxy. So whether it's, you know, the galaxy probably grew it to begin with and then they just kind of have been growing together, it's more the conventional uh, system. So we... It's almost hard to imagine that you, if you won't have a black hole in, in a massive galaxy. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's holding it together, but it's, I think it's just the fact that as it's forming, somehow the black hole has been growing with it, uh, if that makes sense. Mm. We did an earlier podcast episode where we talked about the shape of the Milky Way and how we have evidence, strong evidence that it's a spiral galaxy. Um, and we know that there are you know, different shaped galaxies. So do you find the same kind of phenomena where you have a supermassive black hole at the center of all of the different shaped galaxies? So irregular, elliptical, all of those? Yeah, I mean, more or less, um, we... Uh, I wouldn't say we've looked everywhere, but at least um, all that we've seen, there seems to be evidence uh, that that they do exist in all these massive galaxies. What is it? Can a galaxy evolve without forming a supermassive black hole at the center? Well, so maybe I would go back and and, and talk a little bit about you know you mentioned the different types of galaxies, so you know the sp- spiral galaxies, elliptical galaxies, and so um, if we if we think about it as having seen different types of galaxies in the sky. And most of them, what you would see are either what that falls into one of those two categories. And then we also see the irregular, but there's probably much fewer in number. And so one of the things we want to figure out is how, you know, these galaxies might relate to each other or not, you know. And one of the kind of working theory is that they probably do evolve from one to the other. Um, And... One of the uh, uh, theories that you know my PhD advisor has come up with uh, many years ago was actually how the spiral galaxies they they interact and they collide with each other and in the process 
which is a relatively quick thing that happens maybe in a billion year or a couple billion years or so. Uh, and that's the irregular stage that we might be seeing. And then before they, uh, they become those elliptical galaxies that are, again, kind of uh, evolving passively. And the, the way uh, that we think that this happens, now, I wouldn't say that every galaxy goes through that stage, but when galaxies do go through that phase, they experience a lot of changes, such that they change the shape, they change the gas content, they change the color, they change the size, they change the mass, um, and the black hole along with it. And so the process that I focus on is trying to understand if and when these galaxies do go through this merging process, what happens to the black holes. And so um, when we have these spiral galaxies, we have measured you know, what, their, what the mass of the black holes are, but then during this merging process, it's actually where the mess happens. And because we can't really see what happens behind it, we don't really know how quickly do gas gets formed. Did all the gas uh, actually get sucked in or does some of it get dissipated or does it get formed uh, by stars? Does it get blown away? Um, we don't really know the details. And so, but somehow after this process, and then they come out and, you know, become these, you know, uh, elliptical galaxies again, then they somehow fall back onto that same relationship that you might have expected, you know, the, what I said about larger galaxies being more uh, massive. And so uh, in that sense, then we believe that a lot of these black holes do grow with this interacting process. So while the galaxy is interacting, I mentioned how gas and material falls into the center and all, some of that you know, gets accreted onto the black hole and that actually helps to add to the mass of the black hole and helping it to grow. Um, mm. If some of the galaxies don't experience this process, perhaps their um, gas isn't, uh, either gas comes from somewhere else, comes from the cosmic web, or it doesn't uh, get used up as quickly, then maybe they just grow slower and slower kind of in a linear relationship. But in the processes I study, then a lot of dramatic changes happen during this uh, few billion years uh, of a galaxy's lifetime. Um, and that's what's fascinating uh, to me and what we're really trying to understand with GWST. I am so fascinated um, at how clever astronomers are because you, you said when galaxies collide, it's a relatively quick process. And I know in cosmic time, a billion years is a relatively quick process. But just like walk me through the practicalities of how astronomers figured out that one type of galaxy collision might have led to a different shaped galaxy like a regular when it takes a billion years for it to happen and humans live, you know, maybe a hundred years on a good day. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, so I'm going to be a little bit biased in my answer here because I'm an observational <laughs> That's okay. astronomer. So uh, in my opinion, <laughs> I think that, you know, we observe these galaxies and then we wanted to come up with a story to, to kind of connect uh, them together. And actually, you know, when we study these nearby galaxies, as I mentioned, we see a lot of detail. There's like really beautiful uh, Hubble Space Telescope images out there that can really show you the, the tidal tails and the bridges, what happens when you kind of smash together two spiral galaxies and, and, and then you can see that the, the centers of the galaxy kind of get closer and closer to each other. And, and then at the end, you know, you, you merge and you have come up with single uh, elliptical. But of course, you know, I would give a lot of credit to my, my uh, theorist uh, colleagues for really tying all of this within, with beautiful uh, simulations. And so with their simulations, then they actually are able to, you know, uh, kind of follow this process by, uh, by using different computer codes, simulations to, to show how this process could possibly happen. 
And then when we match simulations to our observations, it's like, well, you know, the, it seems consistent, right? That the theory is consistent mm -hmm. with our observations. And hey, maybe we, we just learned a thing or two about how these galaxies might have evolved. And, you know, the, through simulations, then we also are able to uh, get some time, time scales or estimates of these time scales. And so we can, uh, I don't, you know, no one can really live a billion years to really confirm right. that this has happened. But, yeah. you know, it seems co uh, consistent with the observations that we've made, at least. So those are our working um, theories until something else tells us that we're wrong. Ah, the beauties of computer programming. <laughs> For sure. We're all looking forward to Webb's launch this December. Uh, where are you going to be when it launches? Are you doing anything special or it's still too early to tell right now? Yeah, I don't have, a, I haven't started booking catering, uh, trying to get parties <laughs> going or anything like that. Also, it depends on a little bit on how COVID goes, but hopefully sure. we'll be able to uh, maybe do a little bit of watch party either with my colleagues through Zoom or maybe even in person in our department and just kind of all cheer on and, and watch a successful launch and, and deployment of, of the telescope. That'd be fantastic. And from what I understand, fingers crossed, web launches safely. It goes out to where it's uh, going to live about four times further than the moon is from Earth right now. Uh, how long does that take? And like, where are you going to be when that happens and you get the first images back from web? The whole process from launch to the first set of data coming in takes about six months. So during the six wow. months of commissioning, the t uh, obviously the the telescope needs to get to where it lives and then it needs to successfully deploy you might have seen animations of how the sun shield needs to unfold properly and mm -hmm. you know everything needs to just work right uh and mm -hmm. then after yeah. that there's going to be a lot of um testing of the instruments you know they need to cool down they need to um you know take test images and and get calibrated and then we expect that the first set of the cycle zero uh data will hopefully come in uh, six months after launch so hopefully next summer we'll be looking at some of the first images uh, from, from James Webb. And how do you think you'll feel when you get those first images back, you know, <sighs> next summer? I think I'll be really busy trying to analyze what it looks like. <laughs> you won't have time to feel. You'll just be too busy. That's right. <laughs> too busy working. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I mean, we're doing a lot of uh, simulation work right now, a lot of preparation work to try to, you know, predict and, and uh, understand what kind of data will be coming in. And so hopefully, you know, when the real data comes in, it's just a matter of, you know, running them through and hopefully that they match, you know, more or less what we expect. And then we can, you know, stress to understand the science and, and delve right into uh, figuring out science question. But yeah, I think I'll be super excited, but also really busy at the same time. So Vivian, what else? What, are there any other stories that you want to share with us? And what else do you want people to know about this? One thing is probably that we are uh, here kind of pushing, really pushing the frontier of what we've learned and what what we hopefully will learn, uh, you know, about astronomy. It's not, uh, you know, just trying to, you know, spend money on, on expensive toys, but that we are <laughs> uh, really learning from also, you know, like I said, you know, not just the astronomy, but also the engineering, but even within astronomy, there's supermassive black holes, and then there's the exoplanets and, and uh, the first galaxies. So, I think that, you know, this is going to be kind of a, a step for uh, humankind to kind of make this exploration together. And, um, and I'm very excited to, to be among um, others to, to be some of the first people to do so. And, you know, besides the, the things that we are anticipating 
that we would learn, there's actually going to be a huge space of unexplored uh, territory that we have no idea what we're wandering into just because of the instruments being being so uh, so advanced and being able to peep, peer through things at, at the, uh, for the first time, looking at things a different way for the first time. And so in that sense, um, get excited, <laughs> you know, get get excited with the rest of us and um, we'll, we'll just have to see what we get. Awesome. And Vivian, where can people follow you online and find your work? Um, yeah, I uh, I have a webpage. I'm probably pretty easy to find. You just look up Vivian Yu, Irvine, or Astronomy of some sort. Uh, you just a letter U. Um, it's a, my last name. Um, and I am on Twitter. Um, my la- Twitter handle is just a letter U. I think that would be really easy to find me as well. So I'm happy to help answer questions or, or talk about excitement uh, about astronomy anytime. By the way, you have one of the coolest Twitter handles uh, I've seen. So props <laughs> to you for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been wonderful talking to you, Vivian. Best of luck to you and the rest of the astronomy community. We hope you all have a successful launch with Web. Vivian, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's our show. And thanks for listening. Until next time, keep wondering. Ever Wonder from the California Science Center is produced by me, Perry Roth-Johnson, along with Devin Waller and Jennifer Aguirre. Liz Roth-Johnson is our editor. Theme music provided by Michael Nicholas and Pond5. We'll drop new episodes every other Wednesday. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people discover our show. Have a question you've been wondering about? Send an email or voice recording to everwonder at californiasciencecenter.org to tell us what you'd like to hear in future episodes.